Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to another episode in the New Books and Gender Studies podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Kyle McMillan, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Heath Fogg Davis with his new book, Beyond Trans, Does Gender Matter? Professor, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing, I'm doing well. Thanks, Kyle. Good to be here. Yeah, so I just wanted to start out with sort of uh, your background uh, academically and otherwise, and sort of how you got to the point where you are writing about gender and this sort of uh, idea of going beyond trans. Sure. So without giving sort of going the, the long version of the story, because uh, we have limited time, um, just a little bit of background. So I, um, I'm an associate professor at Temple University, and I teach in the political science department, and um, I always have, but I've always had an interest strong interest in uh, both gender uh, theory and uh, African-American political thought, race, uh, and political theory. Um, and I've been interested throughout my career in um, instances of discrimination that aren't, don't necessarily pop up on the, on the radar screen as obvious. And so um, often these are kinds of forms of dis- discrimination that um, might seem like private uh, acts of discrimination versus public um, that that we that we don't necessarily um, attend to. So I've written about uh, discrimination in um, transracial adoption, for instance. That was my first book, um, and this book grows out of that same kind of um, kind of thinking about what are the sort of forms of gender uh, identity discrimination that we don't typically uh, maybe think of, and so ways to bring a, a spotlight uh, onto those, um, those, those instances of uh, discrimination. And also my activism, I do a lot of trans activism in the city of Philadelphia. I'm on the Mayor's Commission for LGBT Affairs here in the city and um, have worked for uh, probably almost a, a decade um, on various aspects of uh, trans politics, both in, here in Philadelphia and uh, throughout the, the nation. So um, that's just sort of a, a little bit of my background coming to write the book. Um, I also, as, a, as an openly trans person, I also wanted to include some autobiographical details in the book um, to add a kind of human element to it. Um, The book is really a series of uh, case studies where I really uh, try to center uh, trans experience. One of the really interesting things you talk about bringing in the human experience um, that I found particularly interesting is that you kind of outline... Um, different instances where folks are either being questioned for their sex or their gender or both. Um, and it seems like that, that questioning or that policing um, 
seems to be very akin to how many researchers have talked about like border crossings almost kind of like in immigration studies um, and sort of who who gets the authority to make you know those inspections um, I don't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about that sort of how that power is dispersed sure I, I think that's really um, insightful and that's exactly kind of what I, I'm focusing on in the book I begin with this a story which I think is very powerful um, here in the city of Philadelphia for our public transportation system, which is called SEPTA uh, and short for you know Southeastern Pennsylvania Transit Authority, um, had a policy for several decades where they uh, required that anybody who bought a monthly bus pass had to have a gender sticker on on the pass, so either an M for male or, or an F for female, um, and this caused trouble, not just for trans people, we'll get to in a second, but also for anybody who wasn't gender conforming uh, for whatever reason. And um, I tell the story of Charlene Arcilla, who was an African-American transgender woman um, who uh, tried to use a bus pass that had an F sticker because she self-identified as female and was turned away by a bus operator uh, who told her that she wasn't a real, she was not a real female, a real woman, so she couldn't use the pass. Um, Charlene, a friend of mine, she, um, she sadly passed away a couple of years ago, but uh, worked in the city uh, on trans rights and so was an activist at the same time when she was a bus rider. So she came back with a, with a, a male-marked bus pass and tried to use that. And she was turned away by another bus operator who told her that she wasn't a man. So it put her in this uh, no-win no kind of situation. She couldn't use either pass. And I begin with the story because um, I think it, it goes to the, the main argument of the book, which is any time when you have a sex classification policy, a gender policy, you are uh, transferring the authority uh, uh, to uh, our own self-authority to uh, say who we are in relation to gender categories to somebody else who then has the power, just like a border uh, inspector, to say that you either uh, meet the standards or you don't. And what was interesting about the, the bus case, uh, the bus pass case, is that, of course, the employees of SEPTA were never given any instruction as to how to do a gender inspection. And then as you start to talk about this, then it becomes, you know, most people can see how ludicrous it is to even put um, a bus operator or any employee in that position where they're making those kinds of uh, decisions. Um, Charlene brought a case against uh, SEPTA uh, in the city. We have gender identity as a protected category, like a lot of cities and municipalities do. Um, so she brought a, a, a legal claim, a legal case against the bus company. The bus company dragged its heels for a long, long time. It never, eventually it got rid of the sex stickers in 2013, but it never admitted that it had violated Charlene Arcilla's civil rights. Um, so I, I think that the story is powerful because if the sex stickers on bus passes seem ridiculous to us, then what about, it made me think about our driver's licenses and our passports and our birth certificates. Are, are the gender stickers really necessary 
in those um, instances as well, or do they just trigger uh, sex identity discrimination, um, as we saw in Charlene's case? Right, and kind of, you know, going along with your main argument that's laid out in the introduction, uh, what do you outline as sort of the problem with correction when it comes to uh, these policies? Yeah, I think, you know, correction has been the dominant narrative um, that mainstream uh, trans civil rights organizations have used. And while I see a lot of value and I support them and I see the strategic value, which we can talk about in, in a minute, but the problem with the kind of correction strategy um, is that it's based on assimilation. Um, it assumes, number one, um, a, a kind of a stereotypical narrative of, of trans identity, which is sort of this a born in the wrong body kind of narrative, which uh, resonates with some people, but, but not everybody. Um, so there, there's that part of it. Um, and I think that um, whenever you're trying to assimilate people into existing, existing categories, um, there will always be people who uh, either don't want to assimilate into those categories or, and perhaps this is the more um, uh, sort of important or more uh, sort of alarming part of it, um, there are those people who can't, that won't be believed. And so going back to Charlene Ursula again and, and what I think is the radical essence of her legal complaint against uh, the bus company is that uh, she... She, her bus pass was corrected, you know, so she had an F marker for female and she identified as a woman. And so, you know, uh, that, that had been corrected, quote unquote, yet she wasn't believed in these particular instances. And I will just point out also uh, that the vast majority of bus drivers did not give her a, a problem. And so I think that's another key part of this, that um, it's not so much that, um, you know, um, that we, uh, that, that we want to sort of say that, that anybody put in this position to, to carry out a gender inspection will use that power to discriminate against somebody. I don't think that that's true. I think that most people don't intend harm on trans people. But the problem with that scenario was that, um, there were, People, there, there were a few bus drivers who did use their power that way, and that creates a kind of a, a horrible kind of, you know, um, uh, situation where you never know when this could happen. So here's somebody who is just trying to use public transportation to get to their job, to wh wherever they had to go, and to always have to board the bus and, and, and have that kind of fear that this could be uh, one of the bad days, not just being turned away, but also in a lot of cases, uh, trans people and gender nonconforming people were, were loudly questioned by bus operators so that other passengers could hear them. And this created um, a, a really unsafe kind of atmosphere where then the person has to worry about uh, whether other passengers are going to hassle them either on the bus or uh, follow them off the bus. Um, and so a lot of people uh, told, uh, told stories about um, how they were negatively impacted by, by such a 
seemingly benign policy. And I think it, it's important to make clear to our listeners, too, that the argument that you're laying out in this book um, and sort of why we should question um, these um, sex classification policies is that if we start to dismantle them, it it's better off for everyone, including sort of cisgender, gender-conforming people. So I, I don't know if you want to sort of outline how that uh, how your argument kind of plays into that, how uh, getting rid of sex classification or modifying the policies benefits everyone. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up. I think, and I say this right at the beginning of the book, that we as a society would be much better off as a collective we uh, if we drastically reduce the number of uh, sex classification policies that, that we have. Um, and so... There are benefits to uh, trans individuals, but there are also benefits to non-trans people as well. And if you think about the example of public restrooms, which is one of the chapters in the book and has been obviously in, in, you know, in the news, on the public radar, uh, sex-segregated public restrooms, um, number one, they, they, they harm certain trans people, so we have to uh, be clear, I think, about uh, how we define transgender discrimination. Somebody like me, um, a transgender man who's pretty gender-conforming, um, I've not been hassled when trying to use a men's room. Um, however, prior to transitioning, uh, uh, and it's been almost a decade now, I had a lot of times when I was questioned in women's bathrooms because I was either you know androgynous or masculine-presenting woman. So we have to be clear and specific about gender identity discrimination and what that looks like in, in actuality. There are some people who are trans who experience transgender discrimination in various ways, and there are others who don't. And then there are uh, cisgender people who experience transgender discrimination or gender identity discrimination and those who don't. In, in the public bathroom scenario, um, there are... Uh, other people in, in particular, you know, we can think about gender identity discrimination, but also just kind of um, traditional forms of sexism. So um, we know that women and girls have to, on average, spend longer amounts of time waiting for public restrooms, especially in crowded venues like stadiums and, you know, um, uh, uh, I don't know, like uh, rest stops on the highway and, and so on. Um, and that has to do with the fact that um, there's inequity, there's, there are differences in how men's bathrooms are constructed with urinals and how, men, you know, how long it takes men and women to use a public restroom. So um, I think that uh, if you go back to the 1990s, there were all these cases, the so-called potty parity cases, where uh, non-transgender women brought lawsuits against um, concert venues and the like, uh, based on this inequity. And some of the remedies to that were to say, well, okay, we'll, we'll build X number of, of additional stalls for women. But that, did, that it never ended up equalizing things completely. And so I make this point that whenever you have sex-segregated facilities, whether it's public restrooms or 
sports um, or, or any kind of separation, it's very difficult and often impossible to ensure that those are those two um, facilities are or programs are completely equal. This has been the bane of Title IX existence. Um, much of most of the lawsuits around Title IX have to do with this. How do you achieve parity uh, between men and women sports programs on a college campus, for example? So, so there's that aspect of sex segregated facilities. Um, but there's also uh, another sort of uh, set of examples that I bring up in the book, which is anybody who's a parent, and I have, I have a, a, a newborn and a, a toddler who's in the public sphere with, with uh, kids who are a different sex than them, then you have to violate the sex segregation policies of public restrooms. Um, and uh, you think about teachers on field trips with uh, young, young kids, they have to navigate sex segregated facilities. Anybody who's a caretaker of an elderly person or somebody who, anybody who needs help using a public restroom, um, the sex segregation uh, poses a real obstacle. So I argue in the book that we should design and build public restrooms much differently. I think that um, we have some examples of this. If you uh, are in uh, Philadelphia or Manhattan, a lot of restaurants have this scenario where they've just built a series of, of stalls where you have a floor-to-ceiling partition, so you give people their privacy, and then uh, in the middle you have sinks and mirrors that are, you know, anybody you know, can, can use. So it's an all-gender, kind of gender-neutral scenario that gives people their privacy, but uh, ends up benefiting all the groups that I just talked about. And the beauty of it, in my opinion, is that it doesn't harm anybody. So it, it's a kind of a... Uh, universal design kind of solution that I think uh, could actually sort of work. And um, and what's interesting, too, is that a lot of times when I hear people who have used these gender-neutral restrooms, they don't even always uh, realize that they're gender-neutral because they haven't been uh, shocked or uh, harmed in any kind of way. Yeah, and, you know, I think... This is a perfect opportunity to dive into sort of the four case studies that you use to lay out your argument. And uh, you've been kind of touching on the um, sex-segregated bathrooms uh, example, and that, and that was one of your case studies. Um, and I thought it was really interesting, um, and you, you were kind of bringing this up uh, earlier, is sort of that um, the enforcement of these um, sex-segregated bathrooms aren't really about... Um, what our birth certificates say is sort of what you argue. It's more about uh, sort of the normative gender stereotypes, um, as you say, and sort of how these um, different, I think you use the term scripts for identity are used in these uh, bathrooms, right? So I, I was wondering, and you even go into talking about how um, bathrooms are even sites for sort of maintaining hegemonic masculinity, which was very interesting to me. So uh, I was wondering if you wanted to dive into that for a little bit. Oh, yeah, sure. Um, yeah, and it's, you know, let's go right to um, the North Carolina's uh, bathroom bill, because I think if you, I talk about this in, in the book, um, you start to just peel back the layers ever so slightly. You start to see um, what that what the issue 
really is. Um, in that case, um, the, you know, the, the legislation passed in North Carolina, which has since been rescinded, um, said that anybody using a public restroom in uh, the you know, public building, and this included schools in North Carolina, had to use this, the sex-segregated bathroom that matches what it says on their birth certificate. The assumption here is that what it said, what, what sex, uh, the sex designation on a birth certificate is the original and immutable uh, statement of our sex identity. What's really interesting and ironic is that North Carolina, along with every state except for Tennessee, allows for people to alter the sex marker on their birth certificate. So I point out that if the intention here was to exclude trans people from bathrooms, it doesn't even the, the law didn't even accomplish that. But from a kind of gender theory perspective, this is really interesting too because um, there is this sort of uh, you see lawmakers on this hunt for tracking down some are, are something some way of stabilizing um, our sex and or, or our gender and. You know, in academia, we're careful about using those terms differently, but in the public discourse, they get conflated a lot. So, um, so there's this, this, this hunt for uh, something to pin down. You can say is the, you know, uh, the sex that we were designated at birth. But we know that that's not, that that, that, that can change for some people. Um, so what is the bill really about? If you think about how it would be enforced. It, it could never be enforced. It's not a, in any kind of practical sense. Um, you would have to have uh, what I call like bathroom bouncers outside of uh, the, the rest public restrooms in North Carolina, and then you would have to actually have those bathroom bouncers conduct conduct uh, uh, an inspection. Uh, number one, most of us don't carry our birth certificates on our person in the public sphere, so. It's not practical from that perspective. Um, and to match, to sort of clearly identify people who have to undergo this kind of gender inspection um, that ultimately leads to our genitals. <laughs> so um, if you really start to talk through the, sort of the practicality uh, of these uh, policies, um, it takes us up into a place that nobody really wants to go, which is, um, uh, I think, Kind of exposes um, interestingly enough ex exposes uh, sort of the unworkability of these laws. But as I point out in the book, HB two in North Carolina really was about scaring transgender people, I think, and terrorizing us in a way. Um, uh, so in that sense, it doesn't have to be pragmatic or practical. Um, it's rather kind of a, a public statement that we basically don't want to see transgender people in the public sphere because that's what the state of North Carolina was saying. If you, you can't use a public restroom, you literally can't be in public. And I think this is another point that I really kind of hammer home in the book. Um, when I've, I've done, I did a lot of radio and uh, uh, media interviews this summer about about the book, and people were often very interested in talking about the bathroom issue. Um, and it's very easy to trivialize 
just to say we shouldn't be talking, you know, we shouldn't be talking about bathrooms. We should be talking about some, something more important. But in a sense, what could be more important than a public restroom? Everybody needs that basic um, that access uh, to actually be in the public sphere. And I talk in the book about the history of, you know, when women were excluded from the public sphere, from work and from schools, colleges, um, you saw there was an absence of women's restrooms in the public sphere. And that was a clear message that they were not wanted. And the same thing with African-Americans. And the, the, sort of the, the, the list goes on. When Sandra Day O'Connor became the first uh, female justice of the Supreme Court, um, they, there, was no, there was no women's restroom. And so, um, uh, and, and I just um, was listening to an interview with Hillary Clinton about her new book, and she uh, was talking about um, the fact that she was late to one of the debates because she had to walk a greater distance to use a women's restroom. And, um, and Trump, at a rally, took this as an instance to sort of to... Um, to, to mock her and, um, in this way, but here's another clear instance where, you know, she was saying in the interview it was unbelievable to her that the um, number one that she had to walk a greater distance and that the, the TV producers knew this, but they um, they uh, didn't take that into account, and so she was literally late for uh, one of the debates because she had to walk a greater distance to find a restroom. Yeah, and that's a really, you know, good point about sort of why this issue isn't trivial. And I, I think in the book, you really uh, do a great job of laying that case out. Um, but I want to sort of step back to your first case study, because it does kind of inform, um, you know, especially the birth certificate part of your bathroom argument, right? So the first case study that you used are sort of these um, sex-marked identity documents. So so what identity documents do you talk about in the book, and why why, are, why is it problematic that we sort of have the sex designation on there? Yeah, I mean, I talk about um, birth certificates, which are obviously the very first kind of... Um, form of, of document, you know, government-issued documentation, um, which are, are, are sex-marked. Um, and I also talk about driver's licenses and passports. Um, the, clust- the, the cluster of these examples, if you think about sort of what the legitimate policy goal is for the sex markers, um, it's basically to make sure that we are who we say we are in situations where the risk of personal, is important there, personal identity uh, theft is, is high and the consequences are grave. So um, here we're worried about fraud, but it's fraud based on the person, not on sex identity. And we, we have gender markers on all these documents, I think, just as a sort of a rote way, they, they, they were there historically, so we keep on using them um, in a kind of unthinking kind of way. But I want to pause and ask that question, which is in the title of the book, uh, Does Gender Matter Here? Um, does, does gender, is gender uh, a good proxy for personal identity? And the answer is no. It's a, it's a characteristic that we share with many, many people 
it doesn't help in, in any kind of way, practically speaking, to narrow down um, our identity. We also know that um, sex identity is fungible, it's, it's mutable, and so it's something that can change over time. Um, and so if we're looking for uh, the protection of personal identity fraud, then there are better ways to go about that. And we always kind of use the example of credit cards. Uh, credit card companies deal with fraud constantly. It's, it's their biggest issue. And if you notice, there are no sex markers on our credit cards because they know, those companies know that it's a very poor way of tracking personal identity. Um, so they use things like passwords and, you know, chip technology and, um, uh, and increasingly, you know, biometrics as well, which is, um, you know, using fingerprints and, um, irises and, you know, uh, to, um, to, to make sure that we are who we say we are. Now, I think I don't really get into those examples too much in the book. Um, they bring their own risks, um, of course. Um, but the point that I try to make is that we could get rid of these sex markers um, and uh, we wouldn't be worse off and we would be making a lot of people's lives a lot easier um, uh, if we did so by removing yet another trigger for sex identity discrimination. And I thought this is a really important point that you make uh, in this chapter as well, but, but why does adding more sex markers on these documents not necessarily help the overall problem? Yeah, and this is really um, timely that, to bring this part of the book up because... Um, uh, California has just joined Oregon and uh, D.C. in allowing people, uh, residents of, of their state, to uh, check a third gender option, which is an X uh, and uh, stands in for non-binary. Um, uh, so you have now three, three sex categories in these particular locations. Um, so this is, is an example of accommodation. It's uh, very much like, you know, um, you think about the ADA accommodations for people with disabilities, the addition of a third bathroom, um, in addition to the existence of binary uh, sex-segregated bathrooms. Uh, I think that the problem with this, again, it helps some people, but it doesn't help everybody, um, is that it can create a stigma. So, um, you know, why... You know, why should I, as a trans person, have to use a separate bathroom? Um, not everybody is comfortable with that. I don't think it's um, uh, uh, necessarily you know, something that individuals want or um, you could even bring safety concerns into the picture as well. And then the bigger problem, I think, is that it just doesn't do anything to deal with the ultimate source of sex identity discrimination, which is uh, the sex classification policy itself. So that's really like the bigger point in the book is that anytime you have, anytime you invoke sex or gender in a policy at whatever level, you are automatically going to have sex identity discrimination. The question is, I think, you know, uh, about when and where it's justified. So there are times, and we could talk about a little bit, 
times when I think that gender policies are justified, um, that the, that the, the, the pros out, outweigh the cons, and that even when you have those policies, you're still going to have those kinds of discrimination. Yeah, so to jump ahead um, to another case study that you use, um, sex-segregated colleges. So you use the example of uh, sort of all women's colleges, or uh, you would prefer to sort of rebrand or sort of rethink that designation, but why did you pick that as uh, sort of one of your case studies? Yeah, I think um, I started out, you know, when I was doing the research and, and writing the book, um, talking about uh, sex-segregated education more broadly, so K-12, through in addition to colleges and universities. And I still would like to focus um, and, and write about K-12 through sex segregation. I think the age difference, you know, is interesting to consider there. But um, but I, I focused on women's colleges because they've been at the center, especially the, the most prestigious ones, have been at the center of some high-profile um, you know, cases where in particular trans women uh, have applied to women's colleges and um, encountered obstacles, either been rejected or um, been given a hard time as far as admission uh, standards go. So, and then there's the other issue about uh, somebody who um, uh, is accepted into a women's college as female, but then transitions to male over the course of their time um, at the school. So, um, in response to these challenges, um, places like Mount Holyoke and Mills and um, Barnard and Smith uh, and Wellesley have had to uh, respond in some kind of way. And so I was interested in the various responses. Um, to make a long story short, uh, Mount Holyoke is the school that has gone the furthest in making adjustments. And so their policy currently is really interesting because um, their admissions policy, their admissions process is open to anybody um, except for one group of people. And the one group of people that can't apply uh, are um, people who were designated as male at birth and identify as male at the time of their um, uh, application. This is interesting to me that, that this particular group has been excluded, and you can understand why. Um, there are a lot of legitimate uh, arguments to, to say that women's colleges have served a really important corrective function in our society for providing opportunities for young women to be in leadership positions and be in academic environments. Um, we all know that discussion dynamics are highly gendered, and so there are a lot of important kind of benefits uh, that women's colleges have accrued over the years. I would like to see them continue in their mission, uh, but to formally open their admissions policies uh, to anyone. And it would be, a, a, the details of that I think are, are tricky uh, and, uh, to sort of think through, um, but I use the analogy of um, historically black colleges. I think that it might be time to talk about historical, uh, historically women's colleges to say that um, the mission is important and the history is important, um, 
but that as a matter of uh, gender equity um, and equal protection of the law, really, laws, really, I think that um, women's colleges have to open their doors um, to, uh, to anyone. And I think uh, a really interesting point that I got out of this case study um, was that it seems as though the different colleges sort of have the, they're not radically different policies, but they're certainly different policies in terms of how they handle admissions, right? So a point that you bring up in the book is that when schools are sort of dealing with admissions in this sort of like individual case-by-case basis, it seemed almost uh, not inevitable, but it seemed very frequent that in their response uh, to somebody applying that is either, you know, transitioning at the time or was designated male at birth and now identifies as female, it seems as though they're they use this sort of in, in-house litmus test of femininity. Um, and I wanted if you wanted to talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it, it gets really, really interesting, you know, um, once you start to ask the question about, again, and it's the question that I asked for each case study, um, is gender rationally related to some legitimate policy goal? I mean, that's the basic framework of anti-discrimination law in general. Um, uh, and we have, you know, when we talk about race, there, there's a, the highest standard of scrutiny is given to race. Uh, so like a you know, school, like a, a college, can't invoke race unless it has a very good reason for doing so. And it certainly can't force people to self-identify racially. Um, but for gender, there's a lower kind of legal standard I think we should actually have, you know, apply strict scrutiny to, to gender, gender as well. Um, but yes, getting back to your question, uh, then it gets this question of what's the definitional criteria for being a woman? You know, and is it, you know, like, uh, are we talking about, um, biological features here? Are we talking about experience? Um, it's not ultimately clear. I think that there are sort of the most compelling kind of arguments for the existence of women's colleges is that um, that young women applying uh, have been subjected to societal sexism and have had to contend with that. Different responses, but that that might you know, is a common um, experience. Things get interesting then when you're talking about somebody who. Um, uh, either is, is designated as female at birth and maybe lives X number of years um, as, as female and then uh, transitions to male, how much, quote-unquote, female experience is necessary to qualify um, to be a, quote-unquote, real woman? Um, it's a very, you know, those are very uh, tough, tough questions to ask and to answer. Um, and I think that the ultimate answer is that um, that you can't you can't institute uh, criteria in, in that way. You can talk about your goals about combating sexism and creating a certain kind of collegial environment, a college experience that is geared toward um, combating sexism. But I don't think that you can have 
uh, official criteria for who's male and who's female um, in a college admissions process or in any kind of um, policy or process. Anytime you do that again, you're going to have uh, gender identity discrimination. Yeah, and part of the reason that you point out why these remain sort of tough questions is that in any sort of uh, legal precedent or court case that deals with uh, sex or gender discrimination, the courts usually don't define sex or gender in the case, which kind of remains like a, a problem when confronting these case studies, right? Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's such an important um, point. Uh, I think that most people who are not sort of like you know, uh, studying this stuff in, in academia um, might not kind of fully register to them. But yes, the, the Supreme Court, if you look at its decisions uh, over time, totally conflates gender and sex, uses these terms interchangeably um, all, all of the time. And we have yet to, to get um, a, a a court case that really talks about gender or sex as a mutable characteristic. And I use that term because immutability has been the standard that the Supreme Court really has used over time uh, you know, to talk about racial discrimination and then sex discrimination. So um, one of the reasons that the court has given for treating you know, race, racial policies with such a uh, scrutiny is because uh, most often, historically, when race has been invoked, um, it's been used in a discriminatory way by, by uh, public officials and by government. Um, and also uh, the assumption that it's a, an immutable characteristic that we're born with and that we can't change, and so that we shouldn't punish people for something about them that, that they have no control over. Then that analogy was made to, to sex and gender, but now we have a very trans experience, uh, intersex experience, which we should talk about as well, throws a wrench into that narrative. Um, so we just know that that's, while it's true that for the majority of people, sex is um, immutable, meaning that they have, or it's consistent, they don't change that aspect of their identities over the course of their, li their lifetime. But for some people, uh, they do, right? and some people are born with intersex conditions, um, which are physiological, you know, in nature. That, um, but they they can't be, uh, you know, categorized um, as male or female at birth, given the classificatory system that we use. And kind of um, moving into your last case study, which is uh, sports sex segregation. Uh, Sort of before we jump into that specific case, um, I think it is, this is a good point to sort of talk about, um, you began to talk about uh, intersex and how that uh, plays a role in sort of your argument, but also sort of the intersection of race as well. So I don't know if you want to get into that and then sort of that, I feel like that tran transitions easily to your sports case study. Sure. Um yeah, I, I, whenever we're talking about um, sex classification schemes, which, again, always have to be interpreted and applied by some kind of administrative agent, whether that's a customer service 
person, uh, a bus driver, um, you know, a, a principal, a teacher, uh, an admissions officer, a manager at a restaurant, anybody who's um, uh, enforcing those policies has to make those decisions. When we're talking about um, sex identity discrimination, it's often uh, a visual kind of thing that we're talking about, and it's often um, visceral. So uh, gender is probably the first, one of the first things that we notice about another human being in our society. Um, when we're noticing somebody, we're also taking in uh, their race, especially in this country. So racial perception is always gendered and, and vice versa. So um, in going right back to the case of Charlene Arcilla, who African-American transgender woman, when she was told that she wasn't a real woman, she was implicit there was that she wasn't a real black woman. Um, and so, um, so race is always uh, intertwined, it's always intersecting. Um, and again, I think that as like in academia, we talk about intersectionality a lot, and now we're starting to talk about that um, more so in the public sphere. When it comes to sports, and I leave this case study to the very end of the book because I think it's the hardest uh, case study, um, because there are sex-related features uh, that do bestow a competitive advantage. And testosterone has become uh, sort of the measure of sex identity in the realm of elite sports. Um, so the current um, policy that the International Olympic Committee uses and also uh, NCAA Division I sports is the measurement of testosterone, functional testosterone, specifically for athletes who want to compete as female. So there's no corresponding uh, test for athletes wishing to compete as male, uh, but there is a, a, for those who want to compete as female. So if you're um, an athlete who wants to compete as female, your testosterone levels have to um, be uh, lower than the, the average range for, for men. So, just briefly, this brings me to the case of Castor Semenya, uh, who uh, is a, uh, a black South African um, mid-distance runner who has been dominant in track and field. Um, she was uh, uh, sort of, um, accused of being really a man uh, because of her muscularity and her appearance. Um, and um, it turns out that she has an intersex condition where um, uh, her body produces uh, more testosterone than the average female. And this is something that some, you know, that, you know, it's, it's, it's a minority kind of experience, but others share as well. So um, that's sort of, I think it's interesting in the sports world because that, this brings us right to the body. Um, we're looking, you know, looking for sex in the body. And what does that look like? Um, is it muscularity? Uh, is it the tone, tone of one's voice? Does it really just boil down to testosterone? Is that the best way uh, of, um, of drawing uh, distinctions here? And so um, you know, the conclusion that I come to in the book is that uh, it makes more sense to uh, scrutinize these things uh, more so at elite levels than it does at recreational levels. So I think we're seeing a lot of this too 
when it comes to youth sports um, that uh, and also like adult recreational sports, the sort of the breaking down of some of the the, um, the sex binaries um, when it comes to the athletic uh, play and competition. And I know that you bring up the example in the book of the Williams sisters in tennis. And I, I was a tennis player in high school, so uh, I be when this when I was reading this chapter, I started thinking about sort of there are a lot of examples in that sport specifically, right? So you have uh, not only sort of the characterizations that have been lumped upon the Williams sisters, but also you know we're having the Hollywood movie remake or first attempt, I'm not sure, of the Battle of the Sexes tennis match, right? Um, And I'm wondering, now that we're talking, you know, it seems like we have examples, if we're just looking at this one sport, of, you know, the competitive balance argument seems to fall apart a little bit quicker in this, in tennis, as an example. Um, But yet you still have you know, John McEnroe, I believe this was last year, saying that Serena Williams wouldn't even be ranked in the top 100 of men, which is kind of ludicrous. But do you think that, why is it that even though we may see evidence of more parity or um, less, uh, or more competitive balance, why why is it that we're still unable to sort of get past it <laughs> at sort of the professional level? Yeah, that, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I think because there's, you know, there's more going on uh, with something like professional tennis than just who is um, sort of the best when it comes to uh, you know strength and endurance and and um, and skill. There's also what we as um, as as fans want to consume when it comes to these sports. Um, and uh, Claudia Rankine has written really eloquently about Serena Williams and um, her sort of marketability. Uh, and that has been hampered by the fact that she is African-American and dark-skinned African-American woman. And she compares to Maria Sharapova, who is you know, Serena is clearly the better player, but Maria Sharapova continues to be uh, much more marketable uh, because she's uh, a tall, blonde, uh, white woman. And, you know, Claudia Rankin talks about sort of, you know, tennis uh, representing, you know, representations of the good life and who, who embodies that. Uh, so it's a, a lot of sort of like emotionality about, you know, who's watching and what we want to purchase, I think. Um, and the Williams sisters have been really, really interesting um, in in that whole narrative because, of course, they come um, you know from a very different uh, experience um, and have broken a lot of the rules and have you know risen to the top in spite of it all. Um, but things would look very differently um, uh, if they were white. So, um, so I don't know. There's a lot going on there. It's interesting, too, that some studies show that actually, you know, female athletes uh, have greater endurance than, than men. And so tennis is interesting because in the Grand Slams, women 
uh, you know, men play longer matches than, than women do. Um, so it, it, it's complicated. I think it's sports specific. I think it's level specific. I think we have to come to terms with um, the marketing of sports and what we want to consume. You think about the NFL, for example, which is interesting because they're, you know, the NFL, like any major league sport in this country, um, does not is not officially sex segregated. So they, um, you know, but at the same time, um, we've only seen women as uh, kickers uh, very sporadically. It's a very masculine sport. It kind of goes back to you know, I guess some some of your work on masculinity and so on. But but questioning what we want to purchase, I think, as consumers of sport is really important too, and how our gender specific demands. Yeah, and you know, I I think that when you were kind of beginning the conversation into this case study and saying how this was sort of the hardest one, I I think that. Um, for people reading it, uh, I know that anecdotally, I, I have heard sort of the competitive fairness argument a lot um, in this in this discussion. Um, but I think that the way that you present it in this chapter is, I think, really helpful to those that really want to think deeper about that issue. Um, but I know I've taken a lot of your time, so I just have a... a couple closing questions. Uh, if, if you were to have somebody read the, read your book and have one takeaway, um, sort of one main thing that you would hope kind of sticks, what, what would that be? Oh, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked it. Um, I would like for the takeaway, somebody who reads the book, to think about the organizations that they are a part of um, whether it's the workplace, um, a club that they belong to, a sports organization, um, I would like for them to think about uh, wh- when and where gender is encoded in a policy. I have these worksheets at the end of the book. I call this gender audit. And um, I do this with companies and organizations when I do consulting work, and it's, it ends up being a fun kind of practice, actually, where we kind of do a, take an inventory of, of gender policies in that particular venue and then ask that question, is it necessary? If so, why? If not, maybe we should get rid of it. Uh, and if maybe we could replace it with something else. So that would be the takeaway, to, to have a look at the worksheets in the back, think about that question, think about a conversation, you know, a conversation they might have with uh, coworkers or just something that they might do differently in terms of their own practice. And so I think this just basic questioning gender policies where, wherever they are, um, and, and it could be something as small as, you know, thinking about um, sort of, uh, I don't know, the, the gendered honorifics that they use, you know, is it necessary to use sir and ma'am when referring to people to be polite and treat them with courtesy, or could they be avoided uh, to something bigger like... Um, whether the bathrooms are sex segregated where I work and whether that needs to be the case. Right. And I think that, you know, for those listening that might be uh, in academia, even, you know, not just doing a gender audit of your university or college, but even, you know, your department, I think can be, can be very useful. 
Yes, and even um, your classroom, you know, your classroom policies. So thinking about ways to make your uh, classrooms more gender inclusive, trans inclusive. Um, I do this thing in a lot of my classes where I pass around index cards at the beginning of the semester, and I talk about gender identity, and if and I allow students to um, to, to self-identify on the index card. Um, I don't think it's perfect, but it is at least one attempt uh, to, um, again, kind of interrupt this sort of momentum that we all have of just invoking gender in the way that we refer to people and in the way that we uh, carry out things in the public sphere. Right. And, and the last question I want to leave our listeners with is, um, are there any books um, or, you know, could be articles even that if people are interested in your book, you know, they pick it up and they are really enamored with it. What, what would you recommend that they also check out? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, um, the work of, of Paisley Curra is excellent. Um, and he has a book that's going to be coming out with NYU press, um, but also has several articles, um, has been writing about, um, uh, from a political theory and policy perspective, issues around transgender um, uh, lives, and um, and also is uh, the founder and editor of uh, Transgen Transgender Studies Quarterly, the journal, which people should check out. Um, I think also um, just in, in political science, the work of Jamie Taylor and Andrew Flores um, doing really interesting empirical work uh, around these issues. Um, so those would be some of the, the things that kind of come immediately to mind um, within sort of the academic uh, route. Well, thank you for those recommendations. And I, I will say the first recommendation will be to check out your book, Beyond Trans, Does Gender Matter? Um, it was a great read and uh, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. Um, but Professor, thank you for joining the New Books Network today. Thank you so much. It's been, it's been great.